0: You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Before we dive into Exodus 32, 1 through 10, this famous story of the golden calf, I think it would be remiss not to recognize two things that are significant on this day, one nationally and one locally to our church. The first is that this is the 21st anniversary of the tragic events of September 11th. It's a radically changed not only our culture, but our world, uh, affecting first responders, military, family, the world over. So I think we should take some time to pause and to remember that and reflect on um, the sin's error of violence in this fallen world. And then second, uh, we have a lot of our men In the men's retreat over this weekend. They've gathered together for fellowship. And so I'd like to spend a little bit of time in prayer to ask the Holy Spirit to really bless the fellowship and the community that's being built there. So if you would, let's just take a moment of silence and reflection uh, and then close with prayer. Father, we recognize that when you created the world, you called it very good, and yet sin has entered into it, sin that loves violence and oppression and terror. Father, we mourn and lament the events of September 11th in this nation and how radically it changed us, individual lives, and even the world. But Father, more than this, we look forward to the promise of your coming son, that he is making all things new and will abolish death forever. And so Father, in times like this, we lament yet with hope and say, Maranatha, Lord, come soon. And Father, also, we want to pray that your Holy Spirit would be present with all of the men gathered today at the, or the, this weekend at the men's retreat, that you would bless that fellowship, that you would create new bonds, that you would strengthen community that already exists all for your glory, so that you would do wonderful things in the lives of those men. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 10. I'm sure as this story was being read to you, you were very familiar with it. This is the famous golden calf episode with Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, this is something that you don't even have to really know anything about the Bible to know something of, or at least you've heard of the golden calf, and intuitively you know that there's some kind of exchange of a great, thing of value for something of a lesser value, and that idolatry is bad. So if you walked away from the story with just that sentence, idolatry is bad, that's good. Like that's where we're going. But um, familiarity with this story um, kind of takes the edge off, and uh, I don't think we can appreciate just how deeply tragic and disturbing the episode that we're about to see really is in the history of Israel. And if we're wise enough to recognize it, how deeply disturbing what Israel has done in this episode speaks to the whole human condition and even every heart, including mine, in this room. So to get to that point where we can really lament not appreciate but lament what's happening here we 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 need to keep in mind the entire story of Exodus so far especially um, from chapters 20 in the reception of the law or the Ten Commandments all the way through all the instructions that God has given about the tabernacle and sacrifices and the priesthood and all of those things. We have to keep those in the back of our mind because that is what sets the scene for this absolute tragedy. And for that reason, if you want to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, we're going to read word for word from chapter 20 to chapter 32. You're all doing it, I'm just kidding. We're not going to read 12 chapters of Exodus. (laughs) They're essentially instructions on the tabernacle. What I want to do though is to jog our memory of what's happened so far and and highlight key specific phrases and moments in Israel's history that are going to come up in this text today. So uh, let's go back to chapter 19, Israel is gathered, at the foot of Mount Sinai. And there, they're meeting God, and his presence is being made known through clouds, through thunder, through lightning, this mysterious, thick darkness. Israel standing far off. They have a mediator, Moses, that goes close to him. Do you remember that episode? So that's where we need to start, is the holiness of God and his desire to be with people. But there's this separation, a void or chasm that needs to be closed, and we're going to learn what closes that chasm through atonement? But for now, Exodus 19, verse 20, we remember that the Lord came down on the mountain Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. In the narrative, Moses has been there pretty much the entire time, right? So he's been gone according to the Israelite perspective. Uh, and this episode. Also, we're reminded in chapter 20, they get the reception of the 10 words or the 10 laws, the 10 commandments, that before, though, God gives the regulation that thou shalt, or that thou shalt not, uh, before God gives regulations to Israel, he reminds them of his relationship. And this is extremely important to understand why the golden calf is such a tragedy. If you remember God's words in Exodus chapter. 20, verse 2, before he gives regulations, he gives a reminder of the relationship. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Very important verse to remember for this morning. And this relationship we saw was something analogous to a marriage that essentially Yahweh had chosen of all the nations of the world to receive Israel. They were going to, in a sense, be wedded, and that this was going to be an exclusive relationship, which is why the first of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Because if we're going to make this relationship work, if it's just going to be you and it's just going to be me, if it's going to be Israel and it's going to be Yahweh, that just as husbands and wives are forbidden from intimate relationships with any other partner, so Israel is going to be forbidden from worshiping any other God but her true bridegroom, that being Yahweh. Then, if you remember, God instructs Moses on how to build the tabernacle. And if you're keeping with this marriage theme, you might think of it as kind of like blueprints for the first house that Yahweh and God are going to live in together. They're going to grow close together. They're going to spend their days together. They're going to grow in love and increase in affection for one another. This is where we've been for the past few months, right? And and so the narrative you're expecting is like, okay, we're finally gonna get to see this culminating, maybe even honeymoon moment of these two coming together and there's gonna be lots of fidelity and love and grace and mercy, and that is not at all what we see. The narrative takes the hardest left turn possible into the deepest tragedy we've seen in the story of Exodus So far. Verse 1. When the people saw Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Get up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, All right, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned with a graving tool and made a gold calf. And they, the people, said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast of the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and they offered peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, to drink, and rose up to play. It is impossible for us to appreciate just how utterly tragic this episode really is. How deep into a valley that sin is pulling Israel into. I'm going to attempt to show it, that line after line, every single step of the way, Israel is rebelliously upending or reversing or inversing or denying God. There isn't a single point between verses 1 and the end of verse 6 where Israel is not doing something wrong. Think about it. Verse 1 Moses delayed. Did he? Do you know he's delayed? Did you get the iCal invite from Yahweh that says, you should expect Moses back at this time? Or is it that Yahweh can pull his mediating representative to speak to him on his time frame, and we must be patient? Israel is demanding that God be on their calendar and not they on his. Then they gathered to Aaron. These were the same people Who a few weeks ago we saw brought Aaron before the tent of meeting, or were instructed to bring Aaron before the tent of meeting. And now they're demanding that Aaron would bring a God to them. Aaron's not going to God, they're saying, bring a God to us. They call Moses the man who brought us out of Egypt. Was he? I mean, technically he was, but ultimately, who is it that brought you out of Egypt? The Lord your God. Remember? Exodus 20, verse 2, The Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He did so through Moses, but ultimately it was God who did it. Interestingly, God says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. But did you notice what Israel said? Israel said, Moses brought us up out of the land of Egypt. It's the exact same phrase, but what's missing? Slavery. They're forgetting just how bad it really was. Literally, like half a year ago, just a few months ago in their time frame. Then Aaron requests and receives rings of gold. And in doing so, he requests from the people what God had given them. In other words, material for the tabernacle. Remember, on their way out from Egypt, they received gold so that they could then use it to build the tabernacle. And now Aaron is receiving that gold so instead of building a place where God would meet them, they're going to use it for a different purpose, a bad purpose, right? Aaron received it into his hands. Did you notice that? This language is very specific, because what were we in, what, what instructions did we saw, or did we see earlier about Aaron's hands? He was supposed to come before the tent of meeting, be washed, be clothed, and he would receive what from Israel into his hands. Sacrifices to be made to God. And instead he's receiving into his hand gold so that Aaron could craft a god for them. He was supposed to, uh, then, here, Aaron fashions an idol with a graving tool, okay? This is problematic, too, because what did we learn just a few weeks ago? Who was supposed to build the tabernacle? Was it Aaron? No. It was a guy with a funny name, Bezalel, and then his craftsmen and, and the artisans that were filled with the Holy Spirit God had ordained a specific group of people to a task, and now not only is that task not gone, but Aaron is robbing the opportunity for them to do what God has asked them to do, has set them aside to do, has ordained them to do. Their job was to build God's house, not to build a God. Then Israel creates the golden calf, which is an image when God literally told them not to do that. He said, you shall not make for yourself a carved idol. And Israel's like, what if we made for ourselves a carved idol? Right? <laughs> then Aaron says, the gods brought you out of Egypt. Really? Are you serious? The gods brought you out of Egypt? I mean, now the answer that the, Moses brought us out of Egypt looks like the better ap- option of the three. You're taking a test, like who brought you out of Egypt? Was it Yahweh, Moses, or the gods? Well, it's definitely not the gods, So maybe it's 50-50 on A or B. They're getting that wrong. And again, there's no mention of slavery in verse 4. In verse 5, Aaron built an altar before the idol, but Israel was told by God, an altar of earth you shall make for me. And what's crazy about this is that Aaron, if you keep in the context all of the text so far, um, Aaron would have built this altar for the golden calf in plain view of an altar that Moses had built at the foot of Mount Sinai uh, earlier in the book. So now you have two competing altars. You have two competing places of sacrifice. Then Israel rose up early after God had just promised them that they would be blessed through what? Rest, through Sabbath. Then Israel played instead of worshiped. They got up, they ate, they drank, they played. And, and the word for play here in Hebrew, is uh, like a laughing and a mocking irreverence. God's holiness doesn't mean anything to them anymore. This is awful. And it's a, there's a problematic theme that's building in here. I think at every single turn, you could kind of go like, what's going on here? Like, why did they get to this point? And I think largely it has to do with what we could call spiritual amnesia. They are forgetting in their souls who God is. And and I'm not suggesting this from my personal study. The Bible literally tells you that's what's going on. If you want the hermeneutical or the interpretive key to understanding the golden calf episode, go to Psalm 106, verses 19 through 21. And this will tell you exactly what's going on. The psalmist says, They, being Israel, made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They did what? They forgot. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. So when you go back through that list of things that we just saw, going from one through six, you see the theme of spiritual amnesia, the forgetfulness. They, they forgot, literally, they forgot. Is Moses delayed? Let's just speed up the, the timetable here, right? What are they forgetting there? They're forgetting that God's, in the, one, that God's the one in control. Right? Um, God brought us up out of Egypt? No, Moses did. So what are they forgetting? They're forgetting that ultimately it was God who saved them. We were slaves? Don't remember that. Really? They're forgetting how bad things were. God gave us gold for a sacred reason, to build a tabernacle? Let's use it for a profane purpose. God has forgotten the reason why he gave them gold on their way out of Egypt. God wants Offerings in Aaron's hand? Let's go ahead and put gold in there instead. So Israel is forgetting what brings peace between sinful Israel and the Holy God. God wants spirit filled craftsmen to build uh, something to God's service? No, let's have Aaron make an idol instead. So they are forgetting God's ordained people for the purpose that He's called them to. God said, No graven images, we're going to make one anyway. Israel's forgetting the word and the will of God. And finally, God said, Sabbath, rest? No, we're going to rise and drink and eat and play. God forgot, or they have forgotten what God has told them. And they are foregoing God's blessing to them because in Exodus twenty twenty four, God said, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, not forgotten, but to be remembered, to be remembered I will come to you and bless you. But it seems that Israel here has done the exact opposite at every single turn. God's people are causing his name to be forgotten. To forget his name, to forget his character, to forget his work, to forget his power, to forget his holiness, to forget his love. This is spiritual amnesia. Something that not only causes us to forget who God is, but also to forget who we are as well. So when John Calvin penned his famous theological works, The Institutes, he opened it up and framed the entire book in this way. He said, true wisdom consists in two parts. Part one, true knowledge of God. Part two, true knowledge of self. Why would he say that? Because to know God truly is to know yourself truly. Right? Because in in one sense, we are like God. What does Genesis tell us? We're made male and female in the image and likeness of God. What do you mean by that? We're meant for holiness. We're meant for righteousness. We're meant for love. We're meant for mercy. We're meant for grace. That's knowing God truly and knowing yourself truly. And yet, because of sin, we are very much unlike God. We see that, right? If God is holy, we're unholy. If God is sinless, we are sinful sinners. If if God is love, we're haters of neighbor. We're graceless if God is merciful. But we are nevertheless saved by faith, by grace, by God's mercy, through the Lord Jesus. And this is the constant thing that we need reminding of ourselves, right? Because when we forget who God is, we forget who we are. And so Calvin says, for such is our innate pride. We always seem Uh, we we always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. In other words, what he's saying is that it is our own pride that fools us into thinking that we have it all together and, and that we are squared away with God. But then it's too late because it's not the God with whom we think we're square, but a God after our own imagination. And this is where pride in relation to forgetfulness comes into idolatry it's not god that's okay with our sin it's a god that we've made up it's not god that's silent about our vices it's a god that we have made up it's an idol of our own making one conformed to our image and likeness rather than us being conformed to god's image and likeness and at the heart of idolatry is this pride that manifests itself in amnesia spiritual amnesia Because what else but pride helps explain why Israel wanted anything at all to do with any other God than Yahweh? Pride that leads to this forgetfulness of it, right? I mean, when you think about it, um, if you were Israel and you have gone through all of the, the entire episode of the Exodus in Egypt, like, why would you want anything to do with any of those gods before? God just watched. The Egyptian gods be systematically decimated by Yahweh. And at the time, the gods of Egypt were like the greatest gods in the world. So if Israel had met other gods, other ancient Near Eastern cultures that introduced them to their gods, Israel in the back of their mind would have been like, yeah, but the gods in Egypt are like the B team, y'all's gods are like the, or the the gods in Egypt are like the A team, y'all's gods are like the B team. And we just watched. Yahweh whip up on the 18. God, so why should we care about yours? Like, logically, it doesn't make any sense, but boy, is that what sin does to us, right? I mean, think about it. The god of the Nile turned into blood. Uh, the goddess of fertility overrun by frogs. The goddess of protection could not keep livestock alive. The goddess of pharma- pharma- or the pharmacy couldn't heal boils. The goddess of the sun blocked out by darkness. And the incarnate god, so-called Pharaoh, lost his firstborn son and therefore his legacy why in the world are you worshiping those gods? It's so stupid, Israel. And yet, what scripture so often does is turns in the mirror towards us and says, don't you do the same thing. Don't you do the same thing. See, idolatry is not just this physical prostration before some golden material thing. Okay, that is like the textbook, definition of idolatry, but idolatry is beyond that. In the ancient world, we look at people who worship s- statues and totem poles and you know, icons and little trinkets, and we go, it's so stupid, why, why would you do that? Well, they're just doing what we do in a different way. The, our idolatry is more subtle. Our idolatry, I think, is more pervasive, it's, it's more deceptive. You see, as a believer, Christ has freed you from the gods, the God who enslaved you to lust and license, and however that manifested, the God that captured your heart and wouldn't let it go in revenge and hate, the God that bound you in fear and anxiety. Christ has redeemed you from those gods, so you no longer have to worship them. Paul says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but well, you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness that we, with our spirit, I'm sorry, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are his children. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. You see, a sin is a sure sign that you have forgotten not only God, but you have forgotten who you are. The sin of works righteousness, of trying to justify yourself by good works before God, is forgetting that you're God's kid and you were adopted into his family and there wasn't anything you did to deserve it and there not anything you could have done to to get into his family. Uh, The sin of hatred, you've forgotten that the Lord Jesus has called you to be a peacemaker, to be a person of forgiveness rather than hate. Sexual sin, you've forgotten that your body is not your own. Your body belongs to Jesus now. Theft, you've forgotten who supplies your every need, who dresses the flowers of the field, who feeds the birds of the air, who has a cattle on a thousand hills. Lying, you've forgotten, frankly, who your judge is, the one who sees all, all the time. And then shame, you've forgotten who your Savior is. You've forgotten how deep his grace and mercy has saturated your soul. Have you forgotten that you are no longer enslaved to sin but freed to righteousness? That you're no longer an enemy of God but you're adopted as one of his kids? That your future is no longer empty because you're now a fellow heir with Christ? Promises that are given to you and find their yes in him are things like eternal life, true flourishing, fulfillment, love, joy, forever, beginning today. If that's the case, if these things are true of you and your identity in Christ, why worship the gods of this world. Why worship, as Paul calls them, cosmic powers over the present darkness? Why bend the knee to earthly power, to sex and pleasure and attention and vanity and works of self-righteousness? This isn't who you are. And that's part of the Holy Spirit's joyful commission from the Father and the Son is to convince you of that truth. In the moment that you are being tempted, the Holy Spirit whispers, this isn't you don't. Man, this isn't who you are. Repent. Remember, you're God's kid. Why are you wasting your time with these weak gods who promised the world and only ever deliver death? You've been here before. Why craft an idol out of pleasure and work and pay, play and technology and politics and movements and on and on and on? Put down the chisel. Stop crafting idols Worship the Father and Son and Spirit alone. See, idolatry is a sure sign that you've forgotten yourself in pride and consequently you have forgotten God. And that's exactly the problem we're seeing here unfold with Israel. To forget God is to forget who we are, God's image bearers. Humans designed toward God and, and that's, that's toward love and mercy and grace and holiness for God's glory alone. You know, perhaps the, this is going to get meta here for a second, but the more you think about idolatry, um, which I don't recommend, but the the more you you think about it, perhaps the greatest and saddest um, fact of idolatry is that the one who makes images of God is in fact an image of God. Like let that irony sink in for a second. This is what's crazy about idolatry. The one making an image of God is an image of God. That's how Genesis describes this. Male, female, created in his image and likeness, right? So that paradoxically, the idol maker is the exact opposite of the image bearer. You're literally not yourself when you're making an idol. In other words, God makes humans in his own image who then, in turn, make things in the image they imagine God to be. And this is the complete reversal that is caused by sinful control. Because image flows from heaven to earth, not vice versa. We receive definition of our identity from God. We never assign definition of God's identity to him. And yet, that's exactly what idolatry is doing. To create an idol is to say to God, you are now crafted and created according to my image and likeness, of which I call very good, the height of blasphemy. For Israel, this ended up manifesting itself, of all things, in a golden calf. And you might wonder, what's with the calf? Like, of all the animals that you could have chosen, why a calf? And there's a, like a thousand different reasons that commentators have give, given, right? Some of them are pretty convincing. Other ones are like, oh, I could see that you're just trying to you're throwing spaghetti against the wall, like you have no, no idea what you're talking about, right? But I think there is like a common or a core reason that's very persuasive to me, like why the golden calf? And I think it has to do with the, the word for the calf itself here is not a newborn livestock animal, but neither is it like a fully mature or older adult bull. Instead, it's trying to describe, if you could describe it this way, uh, a, a bull that's leaving adolescence and going into adulthood. In other words, if we were to humanize this bull, this bull is in his like, mid-20s. Okay, That's important because this is now both at the height of the animal's power and yet the last chance you're ever going to have to, t- to attempt to control it. Because once they get into their early 30s, right? You ain't changing their mind. <laughs> So here's this this moment where they're their most powerful and yet, frankly, their most manipulable. And that's exactly the kind of God that Israel wants. We want a God that's strong and powerful, but one that we can control. So it's not necessarily the sin of Israel that she was worshiping false gods so much as it is that she was worshiping God falsely. Let me say that again because I think this is one of the big misunderstandings of the golden calf episode here. It's not necessarily the case that the sole sin of Israel here is that Israel is worshiping false gods. The core of the sin here is that Israel is worshiping God falsely. Let me explain what I mean. At face value, you come to a text like this, you're like, oh, they're breaking rule number one, you shall have no other gods before me. There's really good reason to think that because Israel demanded God or demanded of Aaron, make us gods. And Aaron constructed the idol and said, these are your gods. The case closed. God said, don't have any other gods. They're making gods. Seems pretty apparent, right? God is betrayed, right? But I think there's more here, something that makes it even worse than breaking rule number one, which is breaking rule number one and rule number two at the same time. Because they are also breaking the second commandment, which is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I am the Lord your God, and am a jealous God. In other words, the golden calf is a carved image of God that also represents all of these other gods. It's not one or the other, it's both hand. And I think this is the reason why. Israel, again, wants their God to be the most powerful. They want Yahweh to be the most, the the, the mightiest God. But they're also keenly aware that there are other kind of gods, like the Egyptian gods that were defeated by God. So they're like, wait a minute, what if we create a golden calf that represents our God having defeated all the other gods? So we have our super God and we can control this super God. The other thing to think about here is they don't see God. He's immaterial. He's spirit. And Moses is delayed. So they're not even seeing the mediator between them and God. They say, we don't know what's become of him. Let's take this covenant that he was talking about with Yahweh into our own hands, by our own hands. Let's manifest visually what we want to see. And also, and I think this is the strongest case here, that it's kind of a both-and thing. Consider the feast that they are going to celebrate in verse 5. Aaron says, tomorrow we shall be a feast to the Lord. Aaron doesn't say tomorrow is going to be a feast to the gods that are represented by this golden calf. He says, we are going to have a feast to the Lord, which is why the very next day Israel got up and offered burnt offerings and offered peace offerings, which is the very same thing that God had earlier instructed them to do for him. So we should let this sink in for a moment because what we're about to see is God's absolutely incredible mercy and grace. This golden calf represents for Israel a God that is strong yet manipulable, and gods that they feel they can control. There's a progression to breaking the law, that to break rule number one, to have no other gods, and to break rule number two, to have no carved idols, automatically leads you to rule number three, breaking that, which is what? Not to take God's name in vain. Were they taking God's name in vain at this point? Oh yeah, they had a party where they were laughing, playing, mocking. To break rule number three, uh, Israel is also breaking rule number four here, which is the Sabbath. Right? They were receiving instructions like God wants you to rest. And what do they do? They rise up and play and, and eat. They don't rest. And breaking the first four laws here is going to lead Israel down a path to the complete collapse of the holy society that God's trying to build in them. That what's going to stop this train from plowing through honorable relationships with their parents? What's going to prevent Israel from from hating each other and murdering each other, from from fidelity, uh, from abstaining from adultery? What's going to stop them from stealing, from perjury, from coveting? If God does not stop Israel's betrayal and disregard of him, soon Israel is going to have disregard and betrayal for one another, and they will destroy themselves. They are going to experience hell on earth. And so praise God that he's gracious and merciful, and he's a holy judge who has power to execute his judgment because this is precisely what he's going to do and we're going to see this unfold in the this the rest of the passage here and then also tomorrow the tension between god's ability and and right to judge and destroy but also his slowness and mercy and grace because of his love verse 7 and the lord said to moses go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of egypt have corrupted themselves they've turned aside quickly out of the way that i commanded them They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, they are stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone. Move out of the way, basically, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. That is the consequence or the end of idolatry. Consumption by God's holiness. Martin Luther considered idolatry. He reasoned that idolatry not only bends the best gifts of God toward itself, but also fails to realize that it is so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. And this was Israel's multifaceted sin. That for some of Israel, their sin was blending God with the gods of this world, that others in Israel, it was materializing God into something they could create and control. But in both instances, Israel forgot who God is and now desires God on their terms, a God that's manipulable, a God of their making, strong but controllable. So I think here in this text, what we're seeing is that the problem isn't primarily one of rejection and replacement, although it is, the problem is primarily one of confinement and control. They're they're trying to reduce God from a holy, fearsome power to a harmless bull that they just need to put a bridle in, one in which they could frolic before and eat up and drink and play. See, here's the height of idolatry. When Israel asked Aaron, make us gods who shall go before us, in reality, what they were really asking Aaron is to make us gods. When Israel said to Aaron, Aaron, Hey, we want you to make us gods who will go before us. That's what they said, but that's not what they really want. They want power. They want control. And so what they really were asking was, hey, Aaron, make us gods. Turn us into gods. Let us make God after our own image and after our likeness. Give us power. Give us control. Give us glory. And in that, because of idolatry, God's glory and holiness are diminished, And then you hear this new voice. Instead of the voice of God, you hear this new voice. God's okay with your sin. Hey, he's cool with you being in charge. Master and commander of your own destiny. Go for it. You got it. God validates your truth. Even if it misaligns with what he said his truth was in his son, God encourages your authenticity, even if it's a pale imitation of the image of holiness he desires to see in you through his spirit. Calvin again. So the human mind, stuffed as it is with the presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity. The flesh is always restless until it has obtained some figment of itself. In other words, the fallen human condition, the fallen human condition, not the human condition, but the fallen human condition, is driven by idolatry. Because the true human condition should be driven by what? Worship of the one true God. The condition for which we were created in God's image, the condition to which faith and grace and mercy and love restores us by the Holy Spirit, the condition to which Jesus is making all things new in our hearts, the truest human condition ought to be driven by worship, but in our fallen human condition because of sin, we are primarily driven by idolatry. So how do we obtain our true condition again? How do we recover the image and likeness of God in us we don't obtain it, we receive it. We receive it as a gift by faith alone in Christ alone. We receive it by believing that Jesus is as good as he says he is. We receive it by recognizing and believing that you are loved beyond measure. We we receive it by understanding that you are forgiven beyond the frontier of sin in your heart, that there's not a square inch of sin in your life yesterday, today, or to the end of your life that the blood of Christ will not cover. And then, once you receive that by faith, Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you. Receive justification, embark on a journey of sanctification. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. And because our aim is true worship, and God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, Jesus says, Paul says again, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Where is the spirit going to take you? Always and forever, as far as he can, away from golden calves redirecting your heart away from creation back to where it's supposed to be, toward the creator. This is, after all, what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. You were made for God and toward God. You were made toward toward the creator, not toward the creation, so your heart is compatible only with God's holiness and love. But we try, don't we? We try to satisfy those deep yearnings for something transcendent for belonging, for love, for aesthetic, for beauty. We try to fulfill our heart's desires in the world. uh, uh, Augustine put it like this. He said, confessing to God in a prayer, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until it finds rest in you. In other words, if Calvin says, your flesh is restless, making idols, Augustine says it's because your heart is restless looking for God. And until God Himself finds your heart and rescues it and redeems it and points it back towards the Creator rather than the creation, we're always going to be like little idol factories. I mean, isn't it funny? Augustine says, hey, our hearts are restless until it rests in you. Clearly, He's talking about Sabbath. And isn't it funny? Sad, maybe, that immediately after God invited Israel to rest in Sabbath, their, heart, their restless hearts stirred them to giving in to their restless flesh, which ended up in idolatry and play. Friends, we must Sabbath in the invitation rest. You Sabbath even from your idol-making. When Jesus says, "Come to me, all who are labor or all who labor and are weary are heavy-laden, I will give you rest. You rest even from your idol-making. Are you exhausted from your heart's restlessness searching in the world for something you need but cannot find behind every promotion, behind every blog post, behind every class, behind every book, behind every kiss, behind every song? Stop. Just rest in Christ. Are you, like the prodigal son, exhausted by your labors in a faraway land, worn down from the enslavement to your own flesh that sin has caused day in and day out, living as a slave in the world. Get up from the faraway country, from among the hogsties, and go home. Your dad is literally waiting for you and will run to receive you in his open arms. Are you frustrated with your labors of self-righteous, trying to earn your own salvation, like the elder son who was upset when his dad showed mercy to his prodigal brother? Give it up. Rest. In Jesus, remember who you are, a child of God. And John closes his first letter this way, picking up on both of these images, the fact that we are children of God, and idolatry is a bad thing. Little children, keep yourself from idols. And the whole of Christian sanctification can be summed up right there. Little children, remember, you're God's kids. Keep yourself from idols. Because to keep yourself from idols is to keep yourself for God. It is to live a life that you were meant to live, one toward him and away from sin, toward the creator, away from the creation, enjoying his holiness and his grace and his mercy and his love in eternal life. Let's be a church that keeps ourselves from idols. Amen? let's pray. Father, Again, we thank you for your word, spirit-inspired as it is, to not only relate the activity of your gracious salvation history, but also as a mirror to our own hearts uh, to reflect who we truly are, to see ourselves in this story. God, we are not the heroes here. We are with Israel making idols. And so, Father, we repent. Send your spirit the comforter not only to remind us who you are but to remind us who we are in you. God, kill in us the pride that causes us to think we can control you, to manipulate you, to make an image of you and remind us instead that you are not our image but we are your image. Father, send your spirit to us so that we can live truly in the image and likeness of you. Not in worship of idols but worship of the true and living God in spirit and in truth. Father, we pray we'd be this kind of church that keeps ourselves from idol, only by your power and to your glory. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.